The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. For less than a movie ticket per month, you can be equipped with invaluable knowledge. And that is priceless. Tonight's special guest is Dean Henderson, who will discuss big oil and their bankers in the Persian Gulf. Essentially, we will discuss the source of what is consuming this world, its resources, and the enslavement of its people, and what we can do at a grassroots level to change it. Right now, on Veritas. Dean Henderson was born in Falkton, South Dakota. He earned his master's degree in environmental studies from the University of Montana, where he edited the Missoula paper and was a columnist for the Montana uh, Cayman. His articles have appeared in Multinational Monitor, in these times, Paranoia, and several other magazines. A lifelong political activist and traveler to 50 countries, Henderson is co-founder of the University of Montana Green Party and the Ozark Heritage Region Peace and Justice Network. He was vice president of the Central Ozarks Farmers Union and the president of the Howell County Democrats. In 2004, he won the Democratic nomination for U.S. House of Representatives in Missouri's 8th District. He's the author of many books, including Big Oil and Their Bankers in the Persian Gulf, Four Horsemen, Eight Families, and their global intelligence, narcotics, and terror network. He has become a global cult classic among conspiracy researchers, or as I say, parapolitical researchers, and it will be the focus of tonight's interview. To learn more about Dean Henderson's work, buy his books, and read his weekly column, visit his website at deanhenderson.wordpress.com, which is also linked at ours. And I would like to welcome Dean Henderson to Veritas. Hello, Dean, and welcome. How are you? Hey, great, Mel. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I was telling you offline that uh, reading this book once again reminds me of of why the world is the way it is today. The subjugation of the entire planet, mainly to oil, to drugs, and and other things. But why don't we just give a, a quick background of yourself and how you started looking into these topics? Well, sure, Mel. That started as a master's thesis uh, 
back in 1989 in Missoula, Montana. Uh, I was get, I got my master's in environmental studies, and uh, it was started out. You know, we had the biggest uh, I guess per capita anti-war protests during uh, that time. That was the Gulf War. You know, way back then, and um, in Missoula, and I put out this alternative paper and. Um, as part of my, you know, get my master's. And I started checking into, well, who owns the oil companies that are profiting from the Gulf for, you know, was what it was. And you start seeing the numbers coming in and how, you know, ConocoPhillips, 320% increase in profits, ExxonMobil, 600% increase in profits, you know, during this time and selling oil to both sides, sure. And we're talking about the first Gulf War, right? The first yeah. Gulf War, yeah. And so I guess the title of that thesis, another long title, you know, is uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, a regional resource security uh, uh, state for the regime of international capital accumulation. Arika, said Arico, right. <laughs> but still thugs. And uh, so anyway, that was a 144-page deal. And then I guess after I got my, you know, after I got through that, um, well, it was, you know, interesting to see how, you know, uh, one of my advisors, anyway, um, kind of balked when I found out that the Rockefellers actually owned 4% uh, controlling interests of, you know, still Chevron, uh, Texaco, Exxon, Mobil, uh, and BP, and um, other stuff about the Kuwaiti uh, Emmer's uh, son uh, running drugs uh, through airports. And But even though these were facts and these were Gosh, you know, they appeared in these uh, just mainstream newspapers, but it'd just be these little clips that you had to notice. And that's kind of the world out there. If you notice the little things, the little, you know, backstories and stuff, you can kind of piece these things together in addition to knowing your history, of course. But um, anyway, I just so that interested me. Well, why would they, you know, balk at that? It's a fact, you know, but the, the people are so brainwashed, uh, you know, to against believing in a conspiracy. Well, a conspiracy... It's happening right now between you and I, Mel. We're conspiring to have a conversation about these things. So conspiracy actually happens every day. It's just uh, it's perfectly normal. It's just if you have $100 trillion at your disposal, like the Rothschilds, and you cut a deal with the Rockefellers, um, and you're sitting in a boardroom, it can move the, the earth. I mean, it can literally shake the earth, you know, um, with that kind of money and that kind of power behind the conspiracy so, of course, it was just kind of logical that these people would accumulate this wealth. And as the saying goes, you know, wealth begets more wealth. So if these people had all this money way back then, well, gosh, they must have a lot of money now. And they do. And it turns out they're the, the people. So anyway, I got through my master's. I just kept reading, uh, traveling, uh, took stuff, you know, I'd clip, clip things out of the Bangkok Post or, you know, uh, Guatemalteco uh, magazine in Guatemala, whatever, you know, wherever you're at clip it out, save it, had a huge pile of, you know, papers that was lugging around with me. Um, and more getting into the conspiracy aspects of it, too, you know, Freemasonry and the Illuminati and, uh, you know, reading Jim Mars, reading David Icke, uh, reading, you know, stuff like that, reading a lot of, probably over 100 books um, during that period of time after my, you know, graduate degree. And uh, just, this is where the book came from. So, um, yeah, I guess it's uh, everything I know um, uh, about these this thing uh, that's uh, controlling the planet, you know, and hopefully it can further the conversation and uh, hopefully it could be a research uh, document for quite some years to come is my hope, you know. Um, it's a very dense book. As no, it's just very fact, just fact-filled, and that some people it's too much. It's like, okay, yep, because if there was connecting sentences, there'd be 750 words instead of, you know, 450 or whatever. So 
And at the f- first time I printed it, I, I, you know, was back in the old days when I did 300 copies and you had to, you know, literally pay for the paper. And, uh, so, you know, you had to keep it down there, but it's, it's just dense and it's, uh, hopefully it's, like I say, a research document. I think it's got 938 footnotes, um, in that book. Um, and, uh, so it's not conspiracy theory anymore at that point. No, and you crushed all your teeth and you dotted all your eyes. A lot of people, when we think of oil, we think of the desert. There was nothing there. It was full of nomadic people there. But then all of a sudden, British Petroleum and the United States came together and something happened in that area of the world. Can you take us back in time with the history of how oil exploded and why the Middle East became what it is today? Sure. Well, you know, I was all about uh, Standard Oil, you know, of California, uh, and their big find, uh, I believe it was 1943. And, um, you know, before that, again, yeah, most of these shakes nowadays, uh, they were pearl divers and uh, laborers. And, you know, the British had just uh, basically carved up the Ottoman Empire with the Sykes-Picot Agreement and different things. Right. And um, so you had British petroleum. Well, you had basically you had uh, the Iranian consortium. Um, the Iraqi and uh, what came to be uh, known with the with SoCal's find as, later as Aramco in Saudi Arabia. Now Aramco uh, was so Standard Oil of California, Southern Standard Oil of Southern California, which is you know became Chevron, cut in Standard Oil of New Jersey, which is now Exxon, and Standard Oil of New York, which is now Mobil. And it used to be the the, the Seven used. Sisters, right? Used to be the Seven Sisters, uh, yes, Anthony uh, Sampson, correct, and that's where my my term that, that I'm coining uh, in the title of this book and throughout the book is the Four Horsemen is an updated version of you know Sampson's Seven Sisters, which hopefully will become a household phrase because it needs to be because that's why we're paying more at the pumps. It's just that simple. These companies, of course, now own everything from the wellhead to the pump, so and everything in between. So not to mention nuclear energy, coal assets, natural gas assets. Um, you know, so they not only have vertical integration within the industry, they have horizontal integration uh, throughout the energy sector. So uh, it's, uh, anyway, what, yeah, so Aramco uh, was the Saudi uh, consortium of these companies, um, and the Iranian consortium was controlled by British Petroleum, um, and uh, the Iraqi Petroleum Company was uh, also British Petroleum, um, along with uh, Shell, along with, uh, uh, I, I can't, I don't know how you pronounce it, it's Total now. Total's the company now, it's the French company, it used to be some Compagnie, something or other, I can't even pronounce it, but it's Total, is what that became, Total Fina, and that's the big French conglomerate, and anyway, they carved this up this way, you know, these these, these oil giants uh, met this castle, John Cadman's Castle, Scotland. BP and, and literally carved up the map and here's who's going to control what I mean that's how it happened meetings and, and, and agreements um, and they did and actually the Blair um, they were antitrust uh, hearings into it uh, I think it was called the Blair Commission in 55 um, so they carved up these assets they basically uh, started pumping oil and then came you know Bechtel and you know to build it all um, along with uh, Halliburton and uh You know, Floor Daniel was a big one back in those days. Um, and then came, um, you know, basically 13 uh, families uh, controlling the Saudi economy, all of who were 
either selling refrigerators for Canmore or cars for Chevrolet or, you know, on and on and on. They became agents of U.S. multinationals that then went in there. And then uh, as the oil wealth uh, grew in Saudi Arabia, we were able to sell these other things. And uh, while most people languished in poverty and, you know, stuff. And, uh, yeah, so that, that all sprang up uh, in Saudi Arabia and Iran as well. Uh, we backed the shot of Iran, of course, uh, after the coup against Mossadegh in 53. Yeah. You know, we installed the shot of Iran. He ruled till 79. We backed him, and, and actually Nixon called it the Twin Pillars policy, which was Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Twin Pillars would always be providing oil for the United States and the West at a, you know, at cheap cost. You know, they call them the swing producers, but it just means you'll sell your oil cheap to the West. And um, they did, and um, there was, you know, a lot of brutality through it all, of course, and uh, bloodshed, and some of these countries ended up nationalizing their stuff, including Iran, um, you know, and because of that, and... uh, which you know, is a so big, what happened. which is a big part. Now, let me just say for the, the four horsemen. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's in the 80s and 90s. The, the, before that, there were the 13. I mean, the, the, the seven sisters. But then they became the four, as you call it, four horsemen: Exxon Mobil, Chevron Texaco, BP Amoco, and Royal Dutch Shell. Correct. Correct. Now, Iran. This is this is so pivotal here. What happened with Mossadegh? Uh, you know, we 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 think of the Shah, but there was a Shah before Mossadegh. But give us a, some historical background of what happened in Iran when Mossadegh was elected by the people and how he nationalized oil and and what happened then. Sure. Well, yeah, he was democratically elected, and um, yeah, he was uh, going to nationalize British petroleum assets and. Uh, you know, give it give it to the people, and um, of course, BP didn't like that, so they called in the Dulles brothers, uh, Alan and uh, John Foster Dulles, um, who were both uh, attorneys at Sullivan and Cromwell at that time, and um, you know, basically uh, they organized a coup. Kermit Roosevelt led it, you know, whatever great grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, I guess, and um, yeah, they they tossed him out um, mostly through propaganda. And, uh, you know, without much bloodshed and installed the Shah and, um, he ruled with an iron fist, uh, organized a secret police called Sabak, S-A-V-A-K is the acronym. And they're notorious as the most brutal secret police in the world, you know, and, um, tortured people, killed a lot of people. Um, so people had had it again by 79 and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the Islamists that started that. It was the the leftists, the communists that started that uh, business in the late 70s in the oil fields. There were strikes in uh, Kuzakstan, which is, uh, you know, where the big refineries are. And, uh, you know, they basically there was even assassination of a Texaco oil executive, you know, in that country. Um, so the left was just, they wanted to nationalize oil, get rid of the Shah. So basically, U.S. stepped in and uh, sort of facilitated the Shah, uh, uh, the Ayatollah, I mean, coming in, because they'd rather have the Ayatollah and the fundamentalists rule in Iran than they would the leftists. But in the end, it's all backfired because Iran has become more moderate and moved away from the, you know, and, and um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's he's definitely not a puppet of the United States anymore by any means, but the Ayatollah... Uh, for a while, was put to work. Uh, the first Ayatollah was, you know, given lists of leftists by the CIA, and he went out and assassinated them for us. So, um, crazy stuff. But so we lost the Twin Pillars in '79. We lost Iran. So we still had Saudi Arabia. So what's Reagan do? 
comes around, he organizes the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates. Um, and, um, you know, basically the 42% of the world's oil sits beneath these tiny little emirates, which the British are. And to this day, British uh, special forces protect the royal families uh, in, this, in these countries. I mean, the best British special forces. And they're all monarchies, uh, you know, in Qatar, Qatar, it's uh, the Al-Thani family. And, uh, who installed, you know, the, the I don't mean to interject, I apologize, but who installed no. those monarchies there? Yeah, the British installed them. Yeah, the British installed them. And, uh, and in fact, the United Arab Emirates uh, didn't get its independence until 1973. Right. You know, people forget that. Wow, that's not very long ago. Um, so, yeah, so they organize this GCC, and they become the next, the, the puppet, basically, of the West, the swing producer. And they're all, of course, single-family monarchies. Women have no rights, um, can't vote, you know. Um, you know, it's just crazy. It's like feudal systems in the Middle East, and that's our allies in the Middle East, and our enemies are actually the, you know, countries that have democratic elections, like Iran and Syria and, you know, so forth. Yeah. So that says a lot right there, you know. Um, it's not a, you know, it's just what we do. It's what the United States has done since Monroe Doctrine and, and since World War II, especially on, on, on steroids. Just overthrow people, put in people, you know, for the banks, for the corporations, for the families, for the for the shareholders, for the bondholders, whatever. And uh, we did it there. We did it, you know, and it, and it keeps backfiring. And, uh, you know, the latest is the Ukraine, and, and it's backfired. And, you know, it's kind of... Uh, yeah, same old stuff in that respect. Um, so there's a lot of that in the book because it is about, you know, not just oil, but it's about guns and drugs, too. And those are the, the three uh, biggest commodities um, money-wise in the world. And then you throw in the ownership of private central banks um, that these same people are involved with. Then wow, I mean, they do control pretty much everything that matters. And it's all based on death, destruction, um, you know, and depopulation and, and a lot of just nasty things because they're nasty people if they're even people. It, but that's their God, God, oil, and drugs. But th- yeah. you mentioned uh, John Foster Dulles and, and Alan Dulles. What a couple. And I didn't know this, and I'm glad that I, I read your book to find out that they were cousins of the Rockefellers. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I remember finding that out when I was researching. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And that just, uh, again, there's a there's a, a nexus of international bankers in the CIA where they literally recruit the sons and daughters of bankers to be in the CIA. Or if you get high enough in the CIA, you might go work at Citibank next, see, and uh, these families. So it's really, it is about bloodlines, and they're very careful and meticulous about who they select as advisors and who they select as, you know, key people in intelligence and key people here and there and everywhere. So, they're they're obsessed with bloodlines, um, and um, yeah, they're cousins uh, cousins of the Rockefellers. And it, we all one of the funny things sometimes people, oh, you're exaggerating. There's, there can't be eight families, you know, that control the Federal Reserve and all these other private central banks. And I go, yeah, actually, you're right. I am exaggerating. It's actually kind of one family now because you know they've really interbred to the point where you know the Goldman Sachs daughter marries the Kuhn Loeb son and the. Orberg's son marries the Rockefeller daughter, and the Aldrich son marries the Stillman daughter. You know, it's just like this. Uh, what, what Esquire magazine called the eugenics program for the for the Eastern uh, elite. You know, yeah. they called that they called skull and bones that, but it's kind of all like that. You know, inbreeding into and, one. Um, 
inbreeding into one, and, and it also maybe explains uh, why they're just you know not very smart. I mean, actually, it's kind of pathetic, but yeah. they're not. I mean, you know, really, and uh, maybe it's part of why. Maybe it's you know becoming physiologically debilitating because they are inbreeding, and also learning. You know, I learned a lot from this book. I thought I knew a lot about the history, but you put a lot of new new knowledge uh, out there for me. For example, you know, once the revolution in in Iran took place in 79, you know, I thought, of course, this is our arch enemy here, but we were giving them millions of dollars so that the Ayatollah could get rid of the the leftists. And then you have the, the conspiracy also uh, giving them money so they can uh, hold the 52 uh, hostages. Yeah, the weapons, of course, for the contrast and so on. But t- tell us yeah. about the, the holding, what Carter, of course, calls a conspiracy to to keep the hostages until Reagan is uh, elected. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, that's that October that's surprise. Right. And uh, uh, Barbara Honiger, I believe, was the first person who coined that phrase, maybe. I'm not sure. But uh, there's others uh, who did, and it was a big deal. And basically... Yeah, they they kept the hostages and, and they cut a deal, and uh, then they basically pivoted the Ayatollah. Also, in addition to exterminating the Iranian left, um, they also you know pivoted on Iraq. And while while the GCC countries, our buddies, are saying, "Oh, you know, Saddam, yeah, you owe us all this," they basically told him these were grants at first, and then it would come to say, "Oh, actually, no, these are loans," you know. And so if you want to get these paid off, you know, you have to fight, you know, and go ahead and go after Iran here. I mean, we pitted them off against each other. And um, and we just basically just tried to, I think, decimate as much of those two countries as we could using, you know, using them against each other. Really sick. And there are statements by the Israeli Mossad officers in my book that just indicate that that's exactly what they're trying to do, you know. It's something about you know it's it's better if Iraq maintains an advantage, but it's but it's even better yet if uh, neither one maintains an advantage. And when one side would get an advantage, all of a sudden there'd be no more spare parts for certain rocket launchers, you know, and they'd bring them back down. And meanwhile, just destroying all the great cities and all I mean, just infrastructure and naval ports and just wow, so pretty sick, you know. Um, I wrote an article, and actually chapter 10 in the book is, I think it's called Iran-Iraq War, Mutual Assured Destruction or something, but that's what it was. And uh, really sick. And because they're leftist countries, because they nationalized their oil, you know, uh, there was no more Iranian consortium anymore. There was no Iraqi petroleum company. They were nationalized. Iraq was the first country to nationalize its oil sector in the 50s. And um, they they set a trend too, and we never liked that trend. And then they trade they trade oil for, to Yugoslavia, you know, for Yugos and stuff like that, machine parts, tractors. They trade with the Russians, the whole Comicon thing they had going, you know, where they barter things, you know, and which is kind of starting up again in a way um, between you know Brazil and the BRICS and these other countries, but. So they never liked Iraq, just like they never liked Yugoslavia for the same reason. They, you know, they wanted to subvert the international banker-controlled global economy, you know, the IMF thing. They wanted to go around that and barter stuff. And boy, they hated that. Um, so they had to crush Yugoslavia as well. Um, they were making too many, you know, tractors that were going the wrong places. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so um, basically the October surprise, like you say, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, the weapons uh, were given later, and that's where the, you know, the enterprise comes in, and all these guys uh, running drugs through Mena, Arkansas, of course, was part of that, and 
Um, Pan Am 103 was part of that, I guess. You know, hopefully my book, that's what I try to do, is connect these sort of seemingly disparate events and connect them together and show how, well, no, actually that, that was part of that, you know. And you accomplished and, that. Um, you accomplished that. You put, see, you, you, you have so, little okay. pieces of the puzzle, but at the end of the book, you see a lot of the big picture, and that's what I enjoyed. I mean, a lot, another thing that I learned, you know, when we think of mind control, we think of MK Ultra, the CIA and other intelligence agencies, I thought they were the ones behind all of this, but the House of uh, Saud. The Saudis provided information to, well, let me just read this quote from your book. The House of Saud provided information to U.S. intelligence in the 1950s on how to create mind-controlled assassins. The Muslim Brotherhood claims to have first perfected this technique during the, guess folks, 11th century crusades when it launched a brutal parallel secret society known as the Assassins who employed mind-controlled lone gunmen to carry out political assassinations of Muslim Saracen nationalists. The assassins worked in concert with Knights Templar Christian invaders in their attacks on progressive Arabs. Sounds familiar? Isn't that what we're seeing today, even today in these shootings we see in the United States? We work with Al-Qaeda to fight the Yasser Arafats of the world. It's the same. It hasn't changed a bit. To fight the Qaddafis of the world, we use Al-Qaeda. Gaddafi's a leftist. Gaddafi nationalizes oil. You know, it's just Iran. Iran. That's why we have, hate Iran so much. That's why we hate Syria. Not because they're anything. They're just they're leftists. You know, they, 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 and the Americans just don't get that. I mean, we're such a right-wing country. We can't even imagine, you know, a country where communists win the vote a lot of times, which in Iraq they did before we bombed the shit out yeah. of them. And, you know, I mean, in Iran, too. So it's just, that's, that's what Americans don't get. They think, oh, it's just, there's a bunch of, so hopefully, again, one of the, I think one of the themes, like, that is one of the themes of the book, hopefully, is to show that, to show that, look, there's these crazy Islamists that we created, that British intelligence, CIA, Mossad created. It's a fabrication, it's a computer program, whatever. And then there's most Muslims uh, who tend to lean left and who tend to oppose, you know, control of their oil, and, and has, have historically. I mean, most countries in the Middle East historically have opposed this, and not just in the Middle East, but it's just this little cabal, this GCC right now that's that's in the saddle pretty much. You know, but Russia is coming up. Um, there's going to be a shift. Um, I don't know. It, it's getting interesting because the Saudis and the Israelis are coming out of the closet as allies now. That's There's right. quite a bit about that. And is you know it is in this book too. It's just it's just real interesting. They're coming out of the closet, so it's almost like the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, that is well, which is now lodged in the House of Saud and in Aramco headquarters, pretty much. That's like the headquarters of the Muslim Brotherhood right there. And then on the other side, the Freemasons. Well, the headquarters of that is the the, the Queen of England, the Duke of Duke of uh, York. And uh, basically, if you're a, if you're a Freemason, you, you you could know it or you could not know it, but you're an agent of British intelligence. And if you don't know it, well, it's not my fault. Now you know it. So you should quit if you, you're an American. You quote, you quote, <laughs> I believe, uh, you quote uh, a, a former Mossad agent. Uh, I wonder if it's the same person that wrote two books that I really enjoyed many years ago, Victor Ostrovsky, who wrote uh, By Way of Deception. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, Victor uh, Ostrovsky. Ostrovsky, that's yep, it. Yeah, excellent books. And I wonder how he's still alive, if he's still alive. Yeah, right. Good question. I think, yeah, I know. So I wondered, I did he question. write the truth or was his propaganda? Because, you know, if Mossad wants to get you, they can get you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe it depends if he's dead or alive. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, maybe if he was dead, <laughs> maybe they wouldn't want him dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know. So uh, yeah, it was it's a strange book. I remember reading it, and uh, yeah, I was kind of like, trying to really glean that too. Like, is this guy for real? And uh, but I think some of the stuff in there was for real. And uh, whether or not he was uh, all the way, you know, a good guy or whatever, I couldn't say that because it's a strange book, but. Sometimes you you know I read the Wall Street Journal a lot when I can because that's where you can find out what's going on. You see, you have to read the enemy's uh, newspapers, <laughs> and they brag about this stuff. Oh, gee, you know, so and so bought so and so today, so now they're one company, and so the fa- this family is the biggest shareholder. And you know, they brag about it, and so that's where if you're researching this stuff, uh, a lot of times you read these types of things. Um, Financial Times of London, that's the Rothschild mouthpiece yeah. of the world. You know epicenter along with the bbc and um you just that they'll yeah they don't because they're, they're bragging about to their shareholders and they're not careful sometimes so you can find out a lot about who's you know what's going on but um yeah now you, the, the, this mind control assassin part that that really fascinated me because i thought this was an invention of of you know, the Western world, uh, perhaps even MK Ultra and so on. But this is coming from the 11th century. What did they use to mind control? Because I don't think it was any drugs or, or you know, mind-altering substances. That, what were they using? Was it uh, religious propaganda, a, a, you know, Islamic yeah, extremism? I believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It was uh, apparently just uh, just kind of the same thing they promise, you know, uh, uh, uh a Hamas suicide right. bomber, you know, today going into Jer- Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, uh, just eternal afterlife. And, you know, um, there's some stuff in the book. There's some quotes, uh, you know, beautiful women, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're dead, things like this. Yeah, yeah and this was in the 11th century. And um, so, and this all traces back, interestingly, uh, even more interestingly, I think, to this Grand Lodge of Cairo, you know, which is back... Um, where basically all of these things, Freemasonry, Muslim Brotherhood, and the Kabbalah, the Jewish secret society tradition, these all three came out of the Grand Lodge of Cairo. And the Brotherhood of the Snake is what David Icke called it back then. Mm-hmm. But basically at that point, people could shapeshift. Everyone could. Everyone could fly. Probably everyone could fix themselves. You know, Everyone was in tune with everything. And then these, uh, this priesthood, this Illuminati, they call themselves... Um, took this knowledge and stole it and hid it from us and they formed these secret societies and um, they dumbed us down. That was the start of it. So this interesting, this all comes from here, um, from the same place. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by ancient history, I, you know, I guess. Me too, me too. You know, you, a few years ago I went to the south of Spain and, and you probably know what the the pa- palace of Hala, the, the Alhambra uh, is and I was walking the streets, and I saw a mosque next to a synagogue, next to a, a Catholic church. And people even still live there today. But in the past, you know, thousands of people of multiple religions lived together because at the time that was the Moorish times when they, the Moors from Northern Africa took over. But apparently they didn't have this extremism that they have today. So... Were they better off back then with that kind of regime in place? Yeah, I mean, good question. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. That's for sure. Of course, it also, you know, that area is such a crossroads, too. Um, southern Spain, you know. So you just, I think it's just, the, it's a 
it's been a, it, you know it has to do a little bit too with geography, you know, because it's such a melting pot. Either African immigrants coming across or whatever, Middle Eastern whatever, and they get maybe they get stuck there or whatever, and so it's just one of those towns, kind of like Porto Alegre, Brazil, maybe there's a town like that where people just mix together and get along better, you know. So there's that too, but but uh, yeah, the caliphate and all this stuff, and of course uh, you know the Jewish people, um, you know being um you know basically the ashkenazis uh claim you know jewish people from georgia from um not from the area now known as israel you know claiming to be from there um and that's of course a big theme of the book too is just um yeah those were eastern israel. europeans from Kazakh, the the, the kasarians um, yeah Kazars. yeah yeah kasarians and who are the, you know, and who are, the, who are they claiming? And and it turns out, you know, they did the genocide. You know, they they you know they did they fund, sponsored Hitler. You know, just like they sponsored Noriega, and then they dropped everything on him. But they they you know they got him going. And um, I don't know. So and then you know the guys that went to Israel, they paid a thousand bucks, which was a lot that time. You know, so it was the elite Jews who tended to be the right wing Jews, the most right wing, who actually literally could buy their way out. Uh, going through this guy named Rosenbaum, who was Hitler's whatever, whatever, but he was a Jew. Yeah. You know, and he was the guy. So it's like really interesting what went on there. You know, there's a lot of unanswered questions about that. And, uh, you know, I don't claim to know much about that event itself, but I do know that uh, these people financed and, and funded Hitler. This is a very, this is a very, very sensitive topic, and sometimes I don't even like to talk about it because yeah. I get uh, attacks from from everybody. Yeah. But sometimes you have to tell the truth. You know, I say it all the well, time yeah. that Hitler, you know, he did what he did. Yes, was it to the magnitude that people portray? I don't know because you have Stalin that probably killed well twenty five million. And how is it that we don't hear about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, and look at the Congo right now. I mean, in the last 10 years, there's been 5 million people die in the Congo. It's like bigger than Pol Pot, bigger than the, you know, bigger than the Holocaust. You know, it's like we don't even talk about it. It's like, you know, because it's because they're black, dude. Let's face it. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's as simple as that. You know, I will say it because that's the truth. It's because they're black Africans, Europeans. Do you think that. They don't have any power. Do you think, yes, of course, and, and isn't it interesting, it's the poorest continent in the world, but it's the continent with the, the highest amount of, of resources and commodities and minerals, and, uh, you know, they've been raped from, from, from left and right. But going back to, to World War II for a second, with uh, the creation of the State of Israel, when, as you said, the elite, $1,000 in, in the, you know, 19, late 1930s, early 40s, that was a lot of money. So the elite went the Jewish elite left to Israel. Do you think the ones who stayed behind and the ones who get killed in the Holocaust, do you think this they were the sacrificial lamb so that the creation of the state of Israel could be justified by the world? Yep, I do. Yep, I do. That's exactly what I think. That's exactly what I think. And then, of course... You know, yeah, who, who were the ones financing Hitler, too, in the United States? Who were the bankers? Who's behind the Federal Reserve? We'll, we'll talk about, you know, this. People, right? Sure, because, yeah, because, yeah, of course, Rockefeller uh, was into eugenics long before yeah. Hitler, you know, and Prescott Bush was, uh, you know, good buddies with a lot of these SS uh, guys before, you know, the SS was even, you know, Helmer Schock, the shipping giant, of course, you know, Bear. I mean, Bear is a Nazi corporation. You know, they just bought Merck. That was a huge one the other day here, a couple of days ago. 
That's a huge merger. Bayer just bought Merck. I mean, geez, you know, Merck's a big company. And so, again, this reconsolidation of, you know, trillionaire assets that's going on, the biggest concentration well, of Bayer, wealth. Well, Bayer used to be IG Farben. We exactly used to be, and that's right, and hoax. And, uh, yes, there's uh, three companies. And so that'll probably eventually be what happens is they'll all just, yeah, go under that umbrella again, I guess. But that might be a little dicey. Um you know, who knows? But yeah, it's just, uh, again, it was all about just, uh, yeah, this setting up the state of Israel. And um, basically, it's a Rothschild um, entity. You know, most Jews consider the Rothschilds the founding father of Israel because of the Balfour Declaration. And um, they own Paz Oil, Paz Chemical, a lot of, most of the assets of banks in Israel, Bank Lumi. You know, they're the Barclays crowd. It's the same people that own Barclays. And um, this, Israel is basically just a Rothschild outpost in the Middle East to keep the Arab oil patch stirred up and keep oil cheap and accessible. That's, that's the key. That's is. the key term Not right there. Jewish people at all. Dean, that's the key term yeah. you said, uh, stirred up. Is this why we have Hamas and, and Israel Israel wants Hamas there so that we can always steer things yeah. up because that's how they get their funding? Yeah. That's how they licensed them. That's why they, they supported Hamas, gave them aid even. They wouldn't give that to Arafat's people, wouldn't give that to the Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the even more left-wing bunch. But yeah, gave it to Hamas because they wanted to bolster the extremists. And it's just, again, our pattern, you know, is that pattern again of funding extremists. And and then they can say, oh, well, this is, it justifies the, you know, an arms buildup. It justifies war. It justifies profits. I mean, let's face it, it's all about profits. And wars, you know, as as he probably read in the book, uh, Edwin Wilson guy, you know, he's in Marion Prison. They locked him up, maximum security, one of the fall guys of the Iran Contra, or even before that, really, um, Nugent Hand and all that stuff. But he says war is business. They asked him why there's all these brush fire wars everywhere, and it just never seems to end. And he said war is business, and business is good. Yeah, even looking at uh, during the the Iraq Iran war. We were financing both sides, and whenever one side was taking, you know, getting the upper hand, we would finance more the other side so that it could last for what was it, eight years? How many people died? Right, millions. Yeah, it was just terrible. I I think over a million people in both country, you know, most countries. I think. What was Operation uh, Operation Ajax? What was Operation Ajax? Well, that was the coup that, that took out, you know, Mossadegh. And, um, you know, there was a propaganda component of it. And there was uh, some, I believe, you know, I don't, the details, I think some general actually did seize the palace, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, but, they, but leading up to that, there were strikes and there was all kinds of propaganda. And, all, you know, the same, it's kind of the same pattern. You, you lie to the people and then you finance some thugs to go out and march in the streets and create havoc. And it's just the same exact thing they're doing in Ukraine, you know. Can always like in Venezuela, you can always tell the pro pro Maduro people, pro Chavez, whatever the revolution, you know, the Bolivarian socialist revolutionaries. You know, I see them with the sneakers and the ratty pant, you know, jeans and t-shirt, you know, and maybe a baseball cap. And then you watch these guys on the other side, and they're they're all like really well dressed, you know, and they're the oligarchy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's where the oligarchy meets the fascist. And guess what? They're doing it again in Ukraine, and that's always who it is. I mean, it's always these elites that are also the fascists, because it's just, that's who they are. 
and that's you know that's what they believe in and this all this started way before hitler this started um you know way before hitler this sort of notion of uh the great white you know brotherhood <laughs> it's really nazi international that we're talking about here that's, that's that's one thing to call it you know you call it the illuminati or you call it nazi international well, nazi inter- international or, it's know, also which is kind of funny because they accuse us of being you know anti-semitic but yeah, who's anti-Semitic here? Who, who really hates the Jewish people? Oh, the Rothschilds. That's and it. they're Jewish. Yeah. And they're that's Jewish. Right. doesn't matter. They're Satanists above anything else. So, you know, just whatever. Anything goes for these people. Yeah, left. Which is why they need to get locked up or, you know, hung or whatever. I don't care. Do what you want with them. But something needs to be done with these people. I laugh when, I laugh when they use the, the term anti-Semitic because the real the Semitic people are the Arab people in the area. Exactly. They're the dark-skinned people from that area, and that's all it means. Exactly. So it's pretty funny. Yeah, if you're going to be anti-Semitic, you'd, it should mean that you're, you're saying derogatory stuff towards Arabs. That's right. That's what it does mean. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's just smoke and mirrors, baby. <laughs> they control the media. They control the, everything. But it's changing. You know, It's changing with stuff like this and you know, your, your radio show and just everything that's going on, RT, and it's changing. Yeah. And uh, we have some outlets now. A very important aspect here is that there was a whistleblower, I believe, uh, who actually told us about Operation Ajax. Wasn't that uh, Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, who actually was the first one to come out because he was uh, he realized what was going on and he came out and, and told the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. Yeah. Uh, and also the the term Manchurian candidate. Is this from all these assassins? Is that where the term came from? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think. That came from actually a book, I think John Mark's book. Um, yeah, it was a title. It wasn't the title of a John Mark's book. But, uh, yeah, it was just this notion of, uh, you know, basically trained assassins, you know, program killers and stuff, and preceded kind of MK Ultra, I guess, you know. But as, as we were talking about it, it's much older than that. And, um, you know, you... You can get people worked up into some crazy stuff, you know. That's right. And um, it's all mind control. I mean, everything is mind control at some level almost. Like, the news is mind control, you know. My wife says, well, or, you know, we said watch baseball. And, well, you know, it's kind of funny because a lot of progressives or whatever aren't into sports. But I am because it's like one thing on TV that's actually happening. <laughs> you know, so they're not trying to mess with you. A guy really is swinging a bat or whatever or running to second base at least. <laughs> you know, so it's almost like the best thing to watch. Because everything else is just mind control. Movies, I mean, there's some good movies, sure. But boy, 95% of them is just mind control. Be careful. And the news, the news, you know, they all, you know, I was talking to, to somebody regarding the weather the other day and how the weather, it's, uh, they're reading from a script. You don't even have meteorologists anymore. They're just reading from a script. The same thing with all the reporters you see these days. As long as the, the woman is pretty and the man is handsome and they can yeah. read from a teleprompter, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're prostitutes now. Ken and Barbie, yeah, that's it. The prostitutes, yeah, they are, and uh, uh, that's what it's come down to. So, I mean, I just, I watch, I don't get, you know, I just watch RT and uh, press TV. I don't watch, you know, U.S. news anymore at all, except my local weather, you know, and stuff, and um, and that's it, my local news. But no, I don't. Uh, it's such, uh, especially this Ukraine thing is just wow surreal i mean the way they're reporting it and not reporting it what's your perspective on on ukraine what do you think is really transpiring it because to me this this exact point in time to me seems to be where the united states 
and, and you know, NATO, they won a world war. And they're trying to poke the bear, Russia. And Russia is not letting it. They're ignoring it. All the sanctions, Russia is trying to, to, to just be cool about it. But I think once yeah. you poke yeah. the bear too many times, the bear will become disagreeable, don't you think? Yeah. No, that's the thing. And they've been incredibly restrained. Um, the Russians have said that in many interviews, um, you know, on press TV and RT and different places. And, uh, They've been incredibly restrained, and the other, I think you're right, I think it's a part of their econometric model that, you know, basically, uh, I noticed the 10-year bond was down around 2.42% today, so the bond market's now, interest rates are going even lower, and I think what's going on is they've been trying to reflate the global economy by keeping stuff artificially high, you know, like oil and food, and just everything's high, you know how it is. But, but uh, of course, the shareholders get rich, too. You know, Rothschilds make more money. You know, they can borrow money at zero interest and buy some oil futures and make whatever. And, you know, so they, it's that, but it's not working. It's not working because really what happened is a permanent shift in the, the economy that, uh, you know, these jobs that went from America, they're, they're never coming back. No. And uh, it's all about robots and technology. And that's never going to... You know, there's never going to be all these jobs again anywhere. So what are they going to do? And, they you know, well, a war, <laughs> yeah, a big war. You know, that's what they did in the past, and um, it worked. And so, yeah, they're itching to do that. Um, also, because we're exposing them, they're just extremely paranoid right now, and they need to do something drastic because they don't like all this talk about them. I mean, there's a lot of talk about bankers nowadays, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> It's good. Yeah, what about all the dead bankers? Probably haven't been talked about as much. Uh, Yeah, what about that? Who knows? I mean, nobody, I don't know. But, you know, probably has to do with investigations, and maybe it has to do with the, you know, derivativist market uh, teetering on the edge about to crash, and these banks will just be liquidated and go to zero. I don't know. But it's interesting times, that's for sure. And so, you know, Ukraine, yeah, it's it's a fuse they're trying to use to... To, to ignite a war, uh, it's also resources. Um, they're the third largest, you know, uh, you know, grain producer in the world, and uh, after Canada and the U.S. And uh, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say Ukraine is the breadbasket of the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, you know, along with Kashmir and India and a few other places uh, in China, so forth. But you know, it's really uh, rich farmland. They the IMF goes in there in October, and one of the laws in Ukraine was that foreigners couldn't buy the farmland. Well, of course, Monsanto doesn't like that. Cargill doesn't like that, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the IMF uh, has already, you know, they, they demanded that from Yanukovych. They demanded a doubling of electricity rates, gas rates for people, taking away pensions from old people, uh, cutting education funding, all these things in October, and he refused it. So classic John Perkins economic hitman stuff. You know, they failed, so we brought in the guys with the guns, and they marched them out of the country at gunpoint, basically. Um, and um, the snipers were probably Mossad. They, you know, there was Haaretz, uh, the newspaper Haaretz was bragging about how there was an Israeli special forces, Delta Force, leading these uh, people on the Madan. They were bragging about it. I mean, it was all the Israeli press. You know, it's no secret. And uh, so the Mossad was in there inciting stuff, and they had the snipers, and they started this stuff, and basically it was a putsch, and it, and it was all about because I, they wouldn't go along with the IMF. <laughs> so democratically elected president marched out at gunpoint, and 
you know, and then we're crying about referendum. But about Ukraine, you, you mentioned some of the names and, you know, what they're trying to accomplish there. But the way I see it, too, Europe, I think, is waking up to the fact that they have more to lose if they go if they go with us. Why? I mean, don't they get 30% of their gas from Russia through Ukraine? And then we have uh, France yesterday defying the United States, selling Russia military ships. Have, did you see that? No, I didn't see that. Wow. Interesting. So wow. at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, I'm not being, you know, this is not treason for me saying this, but I think Russia's going to prevail with this. Yeah, I think I get that feeling too. I get that feeling. It's, uh, it's the things are changing. Um, we're in a declining empire and, uh, you know, it's going to be the bricks now that have the influence more and more. And, um, Scary for the United States economy, you know. But and, and who is watching patiently, saying it's our turn now? China, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, China, exactly. Yeah, and that, which is one of the bricks, you know. And exactly. So yeah, I think it is uh, interesting, and I think uh, Putin's playing it just right. You just don't don't fall into this trap, this World War Three trap. Instead, we have to arrest the bankers. There's two choices. You can have World War Three, or you can arrest these bankers who have been organizing all these world wars, every single one of them, and lots of wars before that and in between. So that's two choices, and it really is getting down to that, And uh, which is why I guess I'm hoping that Putin will do some, something like this, see, issue arrest warrants for certain people, Warburgs and Rothschilds and Rockefellers, you know? And Do make you some think, hay out of this and, and make it a teachable moment, you know. You know, he's uh, got the set world stage. I think it would be great. And you know, who knows, but that's what we need. That's exactly what we need because this is our moment to do these things. And if we don't, we'll be wishing we had 100 years from now. You know, here in the United States, we have this uh, illusion that we are independent, sovereign country. Do you? Well, we know who rules Europe, the Rothschilds. Now, here in the United States, we have the Rockefellers. Do you think that there are puppets of the Rothschilds and this country we call the United States is just a, an arm of the Rothschild empire? Pretty much. I mean, this is all goes back to that business roundtable stuff, you know, back in London, uh, what, 19-teens, I guess, which part of it, you know, was the Balfour Declaration. Mm -hmm. um, part of it was sending... Cecil Rhodes to South Africa to colonize that area for the British. Rhodesia. Part of that was sending, uh, yeah, probably the Rockefellers and the Coon Robes were set up here to colonize this area. The Warburgers got Eastern Europe, you know, and they uh, and they carved it up. And uh, so it's all this. And, and yes, I, I do think the Rockefellers are ultimately lieutenants of the Rothschilds simply because the Rothschilds got their wealth earlier and they have more of it as a result of that. And um, some people say they're worth $100 trillion. I don't have any evidence of that, but that's something that's going around that people are saying, and I don't know. That wouldn't really surprise me, even though that is a lot of money. You know, can't even imagine it, right? But, again, they've been around for so long, and, you know, money begets money. Old money never goes away. It just gets, you know, bigger, more. And um, unless you strip assets from people, which, you know, is another thing that probably needs to be done, along with land reform and a lot of other things, you know, needs to be done. But people are hurting, you know, and 
too, and uh, that's why I do what I do. It's just always been trying to help the people, right? I mean, that's all. And, you know, try to alleviate people's pain and suffering and the suffering of the earth. And, you know, I've been kicking bullies' asses since I was in second grade, <laughs> you know, really. And guys bigger than me, and just wouldn't put up with it. I don't know. I, that's what it's all about for me, anyway. It's just uh, justice and everything. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens, but... We're at a really interesting moment in history right now. You mentioned how the middle class here is suffering all the time, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And I remember in 1992, 93, I was living in Mexico City. My company sent me there for NAFTA during the implementation of NAFTA. Now I know better, but at the time I I thought that was the, the good thing to do. And I remember talking to a lot of the locals and they were telling me, you know what, we don't have a middle class here. We have an upper class, we have a lower class, and we have who things is a middle class that's always trying to stay where they are. We never thought about that in the United States because our middle class was the example to the world. But now that we have the industrial base gone, and I don't think it's ever going to come back because if it ever does, it's going to be replaced by robots or computers. They don't need the middle class anymore. They don't need the managers because that's what they needed us for, the middle class. Where do you see this happening, going now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there's only one solution uh, short of, you know, they want a world war. You know, they want to reflate the economy through a world war. So that's how they'll put people to work. They'll open uh, defense, you know, factories, defense contractor factories, bullets, everything. Um, that's what they've done in the past. They did it, you know, on the heels of the thirties. We never really came out of the thirties depression until we had world war two. Right. You know, we didn't even with FDR's, you know, programs, um, which we don't have now even, but that would be the other option. You know, that would be the much better option was just to reflate the economy through a huge, uh, new deal, new, new deal, but even bigger and, uh, replace bridges, roads, sewer systems, water systems, do a solar rail link all the way across the U.S. Just a huge government spending program is what it would be. But you don't do it through the Fed. You know, you, you nationalize the Fed first, and then you do it with no interest money. And then you – but one of the things uh, in my Federal Reserve Cartel uh, book, which I just put out, it's actually chapter 19 of the book you just read. I was going to say if that was an offshoot of the book. Yeah, it's an offshoot of the book. Yeah. It's chapter 19 uh, called The Eight Families. In that book, I call it the Federal Reserve Cartel as a book, and then I add a solution to it at the end of the book. And one of the things we do is we take people out of 401ks because once we nationalize the Fed, strip these bankers of the assets and jail, um, the stock market will crash because they own all the stock in it. Mm -hmm. And um, their companies will crash. So we got to get people out of these 401ks and into a publicly public fund, see, like a 5% thing. Now, actually, kind of weirdly, Obama actually talked about this in his last day of the union speech. He did, which is weird. But it's what we need um, because, you know, right now, if you nationalize the Fed, you're going to hurt a lot of, uh, yeah, struggling to be middle-class families, you know, who have put everything they got into these 401ks, which are a total scam because, you know, it used to be every company just had a pension. And then Reagan came along and convinced people that, oh, well, you know, it's this 401k thing. Oh, it's great. Well, the company will match your your uh, investment. Your contributions, well, yeah. 
Yeah, but you used to get 100%. You didn't have to match nothing. You're the one who had to match something under 401k, see? And it was such a sleight of hand. I can't believe people went for it. Uh, but that was with the Reagan years, you know. And, um, people, you know, the 80s wasn't the brightest decade in American history, let's just say. Well, the damage, you know, the way I see it, uh, Dean, the damage is done with the Federal Reserve. They're already there. Like you, and I had this conversation with uh, with another guest and I asked him, how would you do that? And he would say, very simply, I would send the Marines over there one morning and basically say, effective immediately, you are out. We take over and we print our own. Well, we, we, we keep printing our the Bureau of Engraving is, is responsible. They basically are giving us, you know, digits. And I don't think they even care when you see $17 trillion of debt. They don't care about the principal. Because they never gave us the principle. What they care about is the interest. So the damage is done. It's inflated. Keep it the way it is. But from this moment on, you completely remove the debt that we owe the Federal Reserve and you move forward. Exactly. And I, yeah, it's funny that guy says that, whoever that guy is. Uh, that ain't Webster Tarp you talk about, is it? No, 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 no. Yeah, because Webster talks the same stuff as me too. But um, I always say, yeah, send the FBI to the third subfloor of the New York Fed because that's where all the gold is and put it back in Fort Knox. You know, but same difference, yeah. Um, law enforcement, it's called. We use law enforcement tools that are at our disposal to uh, confiscate uh, the wealth that was confiscated from us illegally, and we cancel. It's not going to be seventeen trillion. It's going to be more like thirteen, fourteen trillion. I believe we need to pay off the Chinese. We need to pay off the Japanese and the GCC countries, the sovereign nation states. I, I mean, it's just the right thing to do. You know. You don't want to borrow money from the Chinese people and not pay it back. Andy Goss, by the way. No, that's right. He's right. I agree with him 100 percent, man. And um, and that's and that's and that's the attitude we have to take, the moral high ground. Um, but how are we gonna? The thing is, how are we gonna get the politicians and the FBI and the Obama administration people to do this? And the only way we're gonna do it is just by yelling and screaming about it and howling about it. Maybe having to have a huge protest at the New York Fed at some point and just make it the issue. But I, I guess that's kind of my my mission in life is is to nationalize the Federal Reserve. I mean, everybody's got a reason to be here. That seems to be mine because it's it, – look, everything that happens bad happens because we have a private central bank. Yeah. That's what people don't understand. Everything. I mean, when you, when you see high bread price at the store, that's because Goldman Sachs can buy these oil futures and they own the Fed. When you see uh, – Companies merging like Exxon and Mobil, let's say, how many jobs were lost during that merger? Every time there's a merger, there's jobs lost. Mergers are not a good thing. Dean, it's better. It's a more diversified business community that employs way more people than these corporations employ when they downsize and streamline. And we're so productive. Well, why are we productive? We're working more. We're getting paid less. That's why. That doesn't help the working people. Productivity is not a good thing for me and you, man. It means we're being screwed. And neither is a high stock market, you know, by the way. It means we're being screwed. The reason the stock market's at, at the moon is because they're winning right now. And we got to change that. I always say that slavery was never abolished. It was transformed into the nine to five matrix. And, you know, what you said, what you said that you, you, one of the reasons for you to, to be living is to get rid of the Federal Reserve. I have to tell you, if I had one weapon to eradicate something that would help the world. That is exactly what I would do. The Federal Reserve is this, to me, it is the head of the snake. It is the, the head of the hydra right now on this planet. Yep, it is. And maybe we should. 
Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is Jim Trafficking, right here on Veritas. Beam me up on Veritas, Mal. Always willing to talk.